Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm David Scott, filling in for Paul Colgan, who was away on holidays this week. Now, we've had a very busy week in terms of economic data in Australia, headlined by GDP. So uh, no better uh, chance to go and get a dream team of economists onto the show this week. Our first guest is uh, Stephen Kakoulis, Managing Director at Market Economics. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Good day, David. Good to be here. Fantastic. Uh, and making his debut on the podcast this week, uh, we have uh, Tapas Strickland, Market Economist at uh, the National Australia Bank. Tapas, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, David. And hello to Stephen. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Uh, look, uh, Gents, we'll probably get straight into it. Uh, the headline act this week we saw was the Australian GDP figures that came out on Wednesday. Uh, we saw a quarterly result of 0.8%, uh, no, 1.8% year-on-year, which is still a very weak result uh, in, the, in the longer-run scheme of things. Um, let's just go delve straight into the report. Stephen, uh, I saw on Twitter you were quite vocal about uh, some of the uh, statistics that came out uh, and uh, your feeling of how the economy is performing at the moment. Just uh, take me through your thoughts. Yeah, just briefly. Look, the, the numbers were were okay. Clearly, Australia's not in a recession or anything like that. I don't think I'm that bearish, but more the point that the economy could be doing better. It should be doing better. And uh, when you get a growth rate that's sort of stuck around two, let's just ignore the sort of fine-tuning of the decimal points, but the economy is growing at around about 2%, really. We know that inflation's below target. We know that this sort of fits in with the very weak wages growth. So you've got a, a scenario from the national accounts where the economy is is subdued. A few good points, the probable turn in CapEx seems to be coming through, certainly in the non-mining parts. That's a little bit of a, a ray of light, if you like. But then we're seeing the household uh, sector being constrained by lower savings, very weak wages growth, and that's a concern going forward. Okay. And Tabas, I know your impressions, are obviously you're there very quickly uh, off the blocks, uh, I know with your note that came out after the release. Your general impressions of uh, what you saw? Yeah, so I guess I'll take a more optimistic view of the accounts. What you're kind of seeing there, and Stephen alluded to this, is you're seeing a pickup in non-mining business investment, which has been one of the missing ingredients to the uh, transition to non-mining-led growth. And when you look at the details in, in the quarter, underlying business investment actually rose by 1.5%, yeah? And that still comes with a continued drag from the mining sector. So mining investment in the CapEx survey actually fell. So that's telling you non-mining business investment actually rose in the quarter. So it's saying businesses are at least confident enough to be spending money again. Uh, and they're also confident enough that they think they're going to lift their capital expenditure plans next year. So when you look at the CapEx survey, they're saying they're going to lift expenditure plans by around 5% on 2016-2017 uh, levels. So I think things are looking a bit more positive for the business sector. But I do take your point that if, if you're a consumer, if you're a householder, things aren't looking as great. Um, wages growth uh, per person was uh, negative in, in a quarter. And consequently, households had to run down their savings rate in order to maintain their consumption levels. Now, in by itself, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does suggest that unless wages growth picks up, it's unlikely to be able to sustain that level of consumption growth. How concerning, in, in both of your opinions, is the, uh, is the slowdown that we're seeing in wage growth uh, you know, over the, uh, the last uh, five or six years? Uh, obviously, you know, we've seen the other uh, rundown of the other uh, savings ratio to go and prop up spending levels. 
At what point does it become a concern that, uh, you know, you're talking about the largest part of the Australian economy with household uh, consumption. Uh, if it slows down, what point would you would you be generally concerned that, uh, you know, that something more pronounced could happen to the broader economy? Yeah, look, the, the, wa- the wages side is a concern because, of course, there's only really three sources where consumers can ramp up their spending. They can either get a, an income increase, they can either run down their savings or they can borrow. There's no other source of uh, funding extra consumption. So when you know that household debt levels are, are pretty high, <laughs> so the appetite for more debt is probably starting to uh, top out, so perhaps that's not going to be the source of the income that we need to sustain household spending. Everyone's mentioned the fall in the household saving ratio. So look, it can fall further. And as Tapper said, yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing to sort of dip into your savings when the economy's soft. So it comes back to the point about wages. And if we've got this... I don't know. I think it is a global phenomenon where wages growth globally is very low. We're part of the global economy. There's still the the uh, quest from low-cost producers to uh, search for the next uh, country that's going to produce their goods at a very cheap rate. So I think that's going to continue for a while. And in the meantime, here in Australia, with the uh, underemployment rate quite high, the unemployment rate still well above Nehru, I suspect wages are going to remain very subdued for the next year as far as we can realistically forecast and because of that consumers are going to be constrained in how much they can spend. So for something that's you know, a little over half of GDP, you're going to get um, sluggish growth in household spending. Sluggish growth. Okay. Now, in Tapas, you, uh, you brought it up uh, nicely in uh, your assessment of the GDP accounts. You saw that uh, the business side of the, uh, of the accounts was quite reasonable and uh, nothing to go in sort of fear there. But the, uh, the household side was, uh, was quite soft. Now, you've actually done some research recently uh, looking into the reasons why there's been such a divide in the consumer and business confidence levels in Australia. We've got a gap here, which is the widest it has been, I think, since in 15 years. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and quite a prolonged period as well. Uh, just talk us through some of the reasons what you're seeing at the moment uh, that explains why businesses are feeling so optimistic and why consumers at the same point are feeling quite downbeat compared to normal. Uh, thanks, David. Yeah, when you look at the uh, Net Business Survey and you look at that business confidence level, it's it's at really really good levels at the moment. So I think it's around uh, plus eleven or something like that, and business conditions around plus fifteen. So very very high levels, all indicative of economic activity picking up. Now, when you think of those kind of levels, you'll think the consumer would be a little bit more buoyant. But when you do look at the consumer surveys, they're just not as buoyant as they used to be in the past. They're about five percentage points below their long run average level. So it's not saying consumer confidence is in the doldrums. It's just saying it's a little bit subdued relative to its long run history. Now, the key thing for economists and for anyone in the markets is basically why is consumer sentiment so weak? And I love I love modelling stuff, and so I've tried to do a little bit of modelling on consumer sentiment. I released some of that, those results earlier this week, and basically what it showed you the weakness in consumer sentiment is due to three factors. So the first one is due to low wage growth, and no surprises there. We've been talking about the low wage growth environment. The second factor is due to elevated unemployment, and no surprises there. The unemployment rate's pretty sticky, around five point six percent. Most people think the full employment level of that unemployment rate is around five percent. So still a little bit of spare capacity there. And the third factor, and I found this quite surprising, is that um, house prices and uh, the stock market aren't adding to consumer sentiment as much as they had in the past. And when you take those three variables together, they can explain around 70% of consumer sentiment through time. So I find that quite encouraging that the subdued level of consumer sentiment isn't telling us necessarily anything new about the economy. It's not saying that there's new weakness that we can't really see. What it is reinforcing is the fact that the unemployment rate is relatively sticky 
and that wages growth is relatively subdued. I won't take credit for this cheeky comment that someone else made, but someone sort of said that um, with wages growth so low, no wonder consumers are feeling a bit pessimistic. But businesses who, of course, pay wages, they're paying, you know, their, their wages bill is uh, pretty subdued at the moment, so they're feeling good that they're making a buck at the expense of workers. I know that's a bit of a cliched sort of thing, but yeah, maybe there's an element of truth in that as well. Oh, I think you're definitely right. The income differentials that you're seeing in terms of growth, uh, the business enjoying, particularly uh, those that have been uh, sort of tied to the mining sector recently with the, uh, the surge we've seen in commodity prices are definitely doing better than what has been the case recently. Um, with the divide in, uh, in consumer and business sentiment, a question that I love to go and ask people is, who is going to be right in the end? Is it going to be businesses who are on the money and then uh, you'll see consumer confidence start to go and creep back up to, uh, to, uh, to reasonable levels? Or are businesses overly optimistic and uh, uh, consumers who are actually their customers know a bit more reflective of what's going on? Yeah, look, one of the things that I've noted is that, is that the... Uh, composition of the business optimism uh, is skewed very much towards um, uh, construction sort of uh, sectors uh, and it's away from retail. So the retailers are the ones, of course, where we consumers spend our money, are the ones that are doing less well in this uh, optimistic environment for the for the business sector. So there's even within the, the business optimism numbers, there's some areas that are sort of internally consistent. Which side wins? Well, uh, I, think, I think the critical thing is that there's got to be a lift in the rate of GDP growth to to trend and above to make the labour market a little tighter. And only when that happens, only when the unemployment rate, as TAP has touched on, approaches 5%, hopefully goes below 5%, and that um, uh, underemployment level, which is still very elevated, if that starts to come down, we get full-time jobs being created more than part-time jobs, will wages lift? And when that's the case, then I think the consumer will pick up. But we've still got this conundrum as are the current policy settings, is the current global environment enough for us to get back to that 3% plus GDP that we sort of need to get that wage side kicking higher. Tapas, I know that uh, in your report you, uh, you went and wrote that uh, the last time we saw such a divergence between our uh, business and consumer confidence, it was businesses who ended up being the, uh, the ones who were right, to go and use uh, just a very simplistic term. Uh, is this the same uh, situation this time? And, and just more broadly, what's your outlook for, uh, for economic growth uh, you know, in the other uh, period ahead? Yeah, so may I just cover off on a few points there, just in terms of the wages growth outlook. So, I think the wages growth outlook is starting to turn right now. We have a pretty good uh, relationship with seek.com.au, which have a large share of the job uh, online advertising uh, network. And what they're showing is you're starting to see average advertised salaries. So every salary behind those job ads is starting to lift. And so you actually are starting to see wages lift. Now, when you compare that in terms of the industries where you're starting to see that lift the most, it's definitely in those kind of areas that are in more demand, so those construction areas um, for, for architects, for trades and services, so you're seeing very strong salary growth from that. As well as that, um, you're also seeing business conditions at relatively high levels, and you're seeing uh, firms actually employing people. So a lot of people have been amazed by the extent of recent job creation, and I think over the last six months, it's been the strongest run of job creation for a very, very long time. Job growth is averaging around 20,000 20, a month or something along there, and the break-even level of employment growth is around 15,000 a month. So it suggests that the economy is ticking along okay and that there's enough employment growth out there to put a bit of downward pressure on that unemployment rate. So I think the outlook is looking pretty good at the moment. And as you allude to, David, uh, it looks like 
at least in the past when consumer and business confidence has diverged, it's been business confidence that has led uh, consumer confidence. And most particularly, that was a case out of the 1990s recession. It was definitely the case of business, business confidence recovering first. Now, there's not too many uh, historical episodes apart from that when business and consumer confidence diverged. But looking at that in terms of a lesson from history, you'd have to say it's going to be businesses that are giving a better read. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. You know, you think about the that businesses see operating conditions on the ground, they start feeling confident, they start putting in capex, they start thinking about hiring staff. Uh, more people means more jobs. When jobs start going to get built again, you see, you know, hopefully a bit of wage uh, wage growth, and then generally you see that uh, there'll be a pickup in uh, in consumer sentiment, or say the uh, or throw the. Um, the, uh, the, the flow would normally go. Hopefully that goes and occurs on this occasion, but obviously there's still a bit of uh, uncertainty as to whether or not that's going to occur. Um, that takes us to what was the other big uh, talking point of this week. Uh, not necessarily uh, for you know, any great anticipation, but the Reserve Bank of Australia has uh, held its uh, September monetary policy meeting and there was no surprise that they kept rates on hold at 1.5%. Um, the one thing that struck me from the, uh, the data is, uh, or the, the release of that uh, the statement was that the uh, the Reserve Bank seems quite uh, you know cons- uh, confident uh, and happy with what they're going with the uh, the economy at the moment. Uh, just to read you a little bit of a blurb here, what they wrote. Uh, they said on the Australian economy, the recent data has been consistent with the bank's expectation that growth in the Australian economy will gradually pick up over the coming year. The decline in mining investment will soon run its course. The outlook for mining uh, investment, non-mining investment, sorry, has improved uh, recently and reported business conditions at a high level. Residential construction activity remains at a high level, but a little further growth is expected. Employment growth has been stronger over recent months and increased in all states, with the forward-looking indicators pointing to solid growth in employment over the period ahead. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia has got quite an optimistic uh, growth forecast uh, looking out to you know, 2019, 2020, uh, predicting that the economy is going to go and move back to above trends, uh, above 3% to annual growth rate. Uh, I'd just like to go and get your assessment as to just how likely that is, particularly you know, given what we've been talking about with uh, with wage growth and uh, and the household sector. Yeah. The, the funny thing about the economy now, I, I recall the early 90s recession and periods overseas where there's been the sort of the jobless recovery, you know, GDP lifting before employment lifted. This time we've got the, the growthless job boom, I think we've got at the moment because growth's weak and job creations are very, very strong. Look, I think the RBA... Um, they're still very optimistic, you know, to, to sort of crunch through the national accounting identities to get a sustained period. Look, we might get the odd one or two quarters of 3%, but we need um, eight quarters. We need a couple of years of, of a three-handle on GDP before we can be absolutely confident that we've got the growth momentum coming there. And at a time when you... Uh, I hate to go back to the household sector, but when the household sector is going to be... Um, uh, sedate, let's say, it's going to be subdued in terms of its spending unless something changes quite quickly. You need the CapEx rebound to be quite powerful. You need to see government demand continuing to contribute, so the infrastructure spend that we're seeing, particularly at the state government level, but also at the federal level on, on defence um, defense equipment and the like, that's been a, that was a strong contributor uh, to the bottom line GDP numbers earlier this week. So you need those numbers to be quite powerful, to, and on a sustained basis to get that 3%. And, of course, net exports have to continue to kick in, which they possibly will. Anyway. It looks like LNG but exports are certainly going to be strong. We're up. going to have a bit of import leakage. If the CapEx numbers are right, we're going to have a little bit of leakage into higher imports. But, yeah, without getting into all that sort of um, nitty-gritty, it, it's still... 
it's still hard to get that three handle on GDP, in my view, when you just have household consumption spending sort of more in the twos. You need the other indicators to be at fours and five percent to sort of kick that in. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure where, whether we're there yet. The other thing that's a bit of a constraint is is the currency, the 80 cent exchange rate where we're at now, give or take a little bit, it's it's not hurting the economy to the extent that a above parity exchange rate did a, a few years ago, but it's just sort of taking a little bit of the gloss off what was a better export sector. There's growth in services exports. Uh, yeah, we saw the international trade numbers um, uh, this week. And yeah, that, that, again, they weren't bad, but they could have been better. You'd think that with the uh, the lift in commodity prices and the volumes, we'd be, we'd be having much bigger trade surpluses and we're, and we're not. Tapas, I know the NAB was uh, previously quite uh, downbeat about uh, you know, the Australian uh, outlook uh, for growth, uh, but uh, just recently you started to go and uh, become a little bit more optimistic. Do you think the RBA's assessment of uh, above-trend 3% annual growth is still a realistic target, or do you still think that uh, you know, there's, uh, there's probably going to be an undershoot? Well, I think it all, do, all kind of hinges on the outlook for the housing sector. So it looks like you can get to that 3% growth profile. You know, got LNG exports, they're, they're likely to contribute very, very strongly to growth. And we think you get 3% for at least a year or the next year after that. But then it really depends on the outlook for the housing sector and how much that likely downturn, if there is a downturn, if that's offset by the ramp up in public infrastructure investment. And we're just not clear in terms of that outlook. At the moment, we're thinking that downturn in housing construction will at least um, cause growth to undershoot the RBA's target. And I think we have growth around 2.5% two, two in around 2019. But I think the risk is that the construction levels remain elevated for for longer. You can see in the data that there's a lot of buildings yet yet to be completed. And so that suggests that construction levels are going to be very, very high. As well as that, you've got record population growth at the moment. So when you look at population growth in Victoria, it's running at 2.1% a year. Now, that's a phenomenal increase. I was, I was looking at the, the, the data the other day. And when you look at Melbourne over the past 10 years, their population has increased 25% over 10 years, wow. and that's equivalent to 1 million people. So when you get population growth like that, it's, it basically underpins a very high level of underlying demand for dwellings. And I think the risk is, at least to our forecast, is that that dwelling construction levels remain higher for longer. And I think that's the point that the RBA was kind of alluding to in their statement. And just in terms of what this kind of mining, non-mining split, so I think uh, a lot of things are happening in our economy, and it's very geographically dispersed. And so what you're basically seeing is very a lot of weakness in, in WA, uh, some weakness that was in Queensland and South Australia, and you're seeing a lot of strength in the non-mining states of New South Wales and Victoria. And so you can kind of attempt to split up the, the GDP accounts into mining and non-mining. And when you do that, you can kind of see the non-mining sector is growing at around 3%, and the mining sector is growing at about zero, because the fall in mining construction is more than offsetting the rise in, in exports. So... With the mining economy becoming a smaller share of the Australian economy, we think that will allow the non-mining sector to be, be more reflected in the national counts. So I think it is possible that you could get to that 3% level, but I think it very much hinges on the outlook for housing construction. On a slightly different topic, but you did raise the really important issue of this housing construction cooling off, let's call it. It's very early stages, but the building approvals numbers have, have come off the peak of uh, earlier this year or late last year. Um, and you also mentioned the population growth is very, very strong too. 
the big fear, and this is something that um, uh, would be a concern, is if in a couple of years' time that we've been underbuilding again, heaven forbid, population growth is very, very strong, and this, you know, the, the pockets of oversupply that we're seeing in parts of Melbourne, Brisbane, perhaps, and the problems that are going on in the Perth housing market turn out to be just very short term, and that we confront this problem again in uh, in a couple of years' time with with that rapid population growth nationwide, but certainly in, in Melbourne and to some extent Sydney, that we just haven't built enough houses. You know, then, then we've run into this same problem again, that house price buoyancy remains, affordability issues remain, and, you know, the macroeconomic concerns that the RBA are clearly expressing about financial instability will still be there. It's a great little segue to what I was just uh, thinking about in my head. It's... Uh... The housing market, in particular the pricing, uh, and so obviously we've seen a, a huge ramp up in prices uh, in Sydney and Melbourne uh, and to a lesser degree Hobart, uh, the ACT, uh, over the last five or six years. Um, but uh, in the RBA statement, one of the few major talking points that were was that they actually expressly said that the Sydney housing market is slowing. Um, and the one thing that just struck me is that obviously we've had so much of a benefit come through helping during this period of uh, weak wage growth has been stronger house price growth, helping to go and you know, make households feel wealthier. Uh, just your general view on uh, Sydney is slowing now. If Sydney slows, will it go and impact the rest of the country? Will it lead the rest of the country? And then what could that possibly have an impact on both residential construction and also consumption? Yeah, I don't think the Sydney housing market is slowing all, all that much. I think the the RBA comment there risks. I, th- I think they do risk um, being wrong footed again. If you recall, when they made that very close decision of whether to cut rates back in uh, 2016, they kind of predicated that on saying that the housing market was starting to cool, and then you saw the house prices take off again. And I think the risk is is just like you're saying, Stephen, is that with population growth being so strong, I think the risk is is that. Um, you know, house prices stay um, elevated for longer. And although you're starting to see maybe auction clearance rates a tad lower than they have historically been, you know, at, at, at 68, at 70%, they're still at very, very high levels. So I, I, I don't necessarily buy into the story that, 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 that you're going to see um, big falls in house prices or you're going to see too much in the way of a housing correction. You'll probably see price growth moderate and you probably won't see too much in the way of price growth. But in terms of like a housing market correction, I just can't see it. Yeah, I can't either. I, I, I think that, I, I agree, I think that we get, we have the prospect that house price growth will moderate, that we'll see, um, and maybe even again, little pockets where prices drop 3% or 5%, or even uh, as we're seeing to some extent in Brisbane, uh, property developers with their multiple units sort of having trouble selling them, people sort of foregoing their deposits when they bought off the plan. There'll be things like that which sort of spook people, I think. But for a broadly based economic disruption from a housing price freefall, if you like, it seems very low probability simply because um, yeah, the, the monetary policy settings are still pretty favourable. The unemployment rate, while it, you know, it's hanging around this five and a half, five and three quarter percent, is not yet a problem. So uh, a calling in house prices, probably, you know, we've ha- we have had a tightening in credit uh, restrictions from the from the regulators and the banks themselves, the self-imposed uh, limits on lending for interest-only loans and these sorts of uh, measures that are probably having some impact as well, just tentatively. But to get a fully blown house price freefall, gosh, how's that for a lot of melodrama? Yeah. Um, but to get a really bad freefall in house prices, you know, you, you need something to be, go seriously wrong in the economy, yeah, not, not just sluggish growth. You need you need an interest rate shock, an unemployment shock, an income shock coming from somewhere. And as we've discussed in this uh, first part, um, 
Yeah, it doesn't seem likely. Yeah, like the population thing. If you look at all the other housing bubbles that popped uh, during the uh, the GFC, there was one unique feature of all of them, and that there was nowhere near the levels of population and housing demand in those areas. They were just building a lot of the time. I know if anyone's been to southern uh, southern Spain, I've been uh, lucky yes, enough yes. to go there. A lot of those places were being built for holiday homes and everything else, and just you know everything was like the boom times are happy, but no actual housing demand was really there. And of course, when uh, you know, the rug got pulled, they were the ones who got absolutely hammered. So as you both uh, rightly pointed out their population growth uh, whilst it does have its challenges for infrastructure and everything else is definitely supporting the other uh, housing market um, I can't let either of you go without asking you about interest rates uh, it's a lovely talking point that we have so much discussion in Australia uh, cricket team and then uh, interest rates and the Aussie dollar um, <laughs> so what is the RBA going to do next and when Stephen I might start with you quickly yeah, look uh, well they're clearly on hold and the RBA governor Phil Lowe told us that um uh, he doesn't want to cut and he's got no intention of cutting. Uh, that said, um, I still think he's going to cut eventually. I think, I think the penny will drop. I, look, I, I still think that the wages inflation mix in the economy is, has opened the door for uh, easier monetary policy. And while the Fed is hiking, Bank of Canada have joined that club uh, again, just again this week with a second rate hike uh, in this cycle. Um, the the that, that's going from 0.5 to 1.0%. So they've still got lower rates than here in Correct. Australia. So I think that for the RBA, I think, gosh, timing, sometime in the first half of next year when it's evident that inflation is still below target, that the unemployment rate's still in the upper fives, uh, that wages growth is still in the lower twos, um, uh, and perhaps the housing market has cooled, that the rate of growth has slowed and that uh, uh, that there's, a, there's some pressure to... Um, uh, rekindle growth, if you like, in the economy, the business sector in particular, uh, and maybe if the Aussie dollars sort of rocketed up to 85 cents, um, they might go. So it's a bit richly priced to go and say that they're going to have a 50-50 chance by midway through A rate hike? No, I don't think so, no. I, no I, I see the futures pricing and uh, there's a trading opportunity there for people with bold... Not that that's a trade recommendation. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, Tobias, what's uh, the NAB's official view at yeah, the moment? Well, I'd have to completely disagree with that. Uh... Stephen, I would say... Makes the market. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say the next move is definitely up. Uh, I guess from NAB's official view, we're, we're thinking rates will be on hold in uh, 2017, 2018, and you know, they'll think about raising in the mid-2019. Uh, but I think, personally, I think the risk is, is they, they go earlier. Um, so I like to look at what's happening in the labour market, and you're clearly seeing a lot of employment growth at the moment, and all indicators suggest that employment growth is going to continue. Employment growth is going around 20000 a month, that's enough to drop the unemployment rate if participation rate stays unchanged, 0.1 every three months. So in about a year's time, you'd have the unemployment rate edging down towards that Nehru level. So, Actually, can I just stop you very quickly? Sure. You both discussed Nehru. Now, I know what it is, but for the listeners there, could you explain what Nehru is? Yeah, well, it's, it's an acronym. So the long way of saying it is a non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment. It's basically the unemployment rate that doesn't really generate an acceleration in inflation, so no, no real change in, in inflation. Um, and at the moment, most people pick that at around 5% in Australia, and the unemployment rate's at 5.6%. But we're seeing a lot of employment growth at the moment. You're seeing non-investment Mining intentions, uh, non-invest, non-mining investment tensions lift. Uh, bit of a mouthful there, uh, and so I think it is tending towards that positive side. You're seeing business conditions at very uh, above long-run average levels at plus 15. You're seeing business confidence at plus 11. So all these indicators are looking very, very good. The one weak indicator on the economy is wages growth, and I think 
Um, as soon as wages growth starts lifting, then I think the RBA would be prepared to start removing some policy accommodation. So what you have to remember is rates at 1.5%, they're at emergency levels. If you remember going back three or four years ago, that's what politicians all said, you know, if rates are at emergency levels, we're in a crisis. But I guess the point to take away from that emergency rate setting level is if, even if you remove some accommodation, the stance of policy is still accommodative. So what you're doing is you're removing some policy accommodation. And when you have unemployment um, falling, if you do, when you've got uh, employment growth around 20000 a month, then you want to remove some of that accommodation. And you're speaking about the Bank of Canada, and I've just got their press release here. And I think what was quite interesting about that is that inflation in Canada is still below target, um, but they have confidence that inflation will get back to target. So in Australia, the core inflation rate is about 1.8%, and the RBA forecasts that to get back into the target range by the beginning of 2018. And so I, I think it's the degree of confidence they have in that inflation forecast. The second bit is that they're not quite at the full employment level, but they want to be back to neutral by the time they get there. So rates at 1.5%, Nehru at 5%, that, that um, natural rate is basically pegged at around 3 to 3.5%. So basically it tells you once that unemployment rate starts getting down towards that 5% level, then you'd want to then I assume the RBA would want to remove some policy accommodation. And I think the risk is, just yeah. given how employment growth is going, is that occurs in 2018 rather than in, in 2019. Yeah, look, look, getting back into Nehru and even the Bank of Canada, I think they hiked in 2009, which was a disaster as well. So they, they, yeah, they're not infallible. Um, but the interesting part about Nehru is when we look globally and see the unemployment rate in the US now you know, below 45 and it has been for quite a while, with very little evidence of a wage pickup there. And I think most people, if they were, to, they were asked even now what Nehru is in the US, it, it's probably now. And they're not seeing any hint of any material concern on wages growth. Similarly, in um, in Germany, Japan's always a bit different, of course, because of the demographic issues at play there. But um, you know, their 2.8% unemployment rates associated with still very modest wages growth. So, I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether the um, uh, global phenomenon that we were talking about a moment ago about very low uh, cost of production globally not just the China effect, but the moving to other economies now that have got lower labour costs and lower costs of doing business and perhaps less regulations on pollution control and all these other important things. But, yeah, they go to these other the, the big firms looking to lower their cost of production to maintain their competitive position will just keep producing these you know, very cheap goods in particular um, and that that keeps wages pressures in, in the industrialised world and here in Australia too at very low levels and in that sort of climate that the pricing power that the not just the Amazons and these sorts of firms that are coming in to, um, to take advantage of, uh, of the economic conditions, uh, just keeps inflation very low for very long and the, the RBA just can't hike rates when inflation's you know, in the lower end of their band, even though for the last, goodness knows, four years, five years, they've been forecasting a pickup that hasn't materialised. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting you make that point about Amazon. So I've, I've been trying to do a little bit of work on this just given... Amazon's coming into Australia and all the yeah, conversation that's been, yeah. been been happening. And I know you've had a few guests there, David, who have been speaking a lot I'm about Amazon doubt. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I raised it. Well, no, go on, go well, on. I'm just going to drag it out a little bit longer. <laughs> but I, I think the I think the really interesting point is on on the impact on the CPI. Um, online goods, in terms of its impact on the CPI, is about four percent of the US CPI basket. At most, it can account for about 0.1 to 0.2 percent of the annual rate 
of, of inflation. And the other really interesting thing that I find about uh, on, on online sales is um, I don't think there is too much difference between the disruption that's happening now and when, say, Walmart started back, back in the 90s and started their expansion. So well, when economists talk about inflation, I think sometimes they have to go back and back to the first thing and that is the price level. So all these positive supply shocks, you know, on, on online shopping, um, you know, outsourcing, all those kind of things, do put a downward pressure on the price level, but it's, it can't be persistent through time. Um, sure, a s- sequence of one-off price shocks uh, or supply shocks will give the appearance of uh, lower inflation, but what it is really is just a series of one-off shocks, and once those shocks dissipate, then you do get inflation. I'd like to just butt in there too, and this is a really technical issue. Uh, the ABS are rebasing the CPI basket at the end of this year. And things like tobacco, which, of course, people don't consume as much as they used to, that's been one of the drivers of the headline CPI anyway, yeah. being relatively high. That uh, Apparently, and I guess uh, I'm relying on other people who are much smarter than me who have crunched the numbers, uh, the, the estimates that I've seen are that the re-weighting of the goods and services in the consumer price index basket will trim somewhere around about 0.2.3 percentage points off the CPI because these things that are expensive that we don't consume to the same extent, will have a much lower weighting or could even drop out yeah. completely. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that Westpac did some analysis on it. I uh, think it was released yesterday and, yeah. today, and they said that uh, underline as well could be impacted. But, but, but by a couple much, of tenths. By yeah, a couple to a much, so much not, lesser degree. But not so. a game changer. I think it's Tapper yeah. said with the Amazon effect being 0.1 or mm. you know, thereabouts. Um, but it's still 0.1 on the, on the downside, yeah. and that's, I think, yeah. important to sort of acknowledge. But, and, yeah. and I think the other thing about wages growth is um, <laughs> you are right, you know, it may be due to competitive pressures internationally, uh, workers seeing, um, you know, a little bit insecure work and those kind of things. Um, but at least when you do um, some kind of theoretical framework around it, what you can basically break down the drift down in wages growth in Australia to be and what it's being caused by, it's basically two things. And so the first one is greater um, underemployment than there has been in the past. And you can definitely see that in the data. Got very elevated un- underemployment, around uh, 8% um, of underemployment. So there's around 8% of people who want to work more hours. And how many more hours they want to work? They want to work an extra two days. So it does seem like there's a fair, fair bit there. Um, and then the other thing is, and this is one I find really interesting, is its inflation expectations. So inflation expectations are a lot lower than they have been in the past. And what we're going to see in the next few months, at least, you're going to see some headline inflation. You're going to see it through um, energy prices. Uh, and you're also going to see a little bit of pressure coming through from the minimum wage. The minimum wage was was increased as well. Um, so I think, if anything, I think some of those indicators, you know, employment growth being relatively solid, they will make some inroads into unemployment and into un- underemployment. And I think the risk is, is that wages do start to lift a little bit. They're not going to lift a lot, but they will start uh, turning. So, in very much in a nutshell, I hope the NAB is right because it means the economy is doing very well. <laughs> and then, from uh, Stephen's perspective, uh, he's right as well because that'll be great for traffic to go and see a surprise cut from the RBA, which no one is seeing. <laughs> who, who knows what the future holds, especially with uh, Kim Jong Un uh, uh, doing what he's doing over in North Korea at the moment. Um, actually, leads me nicely. Uh, just going to ask you very quickly as well. Um, there's a great little survey from uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, where they go and ask fund managers what the biggest tail risk, what the biggest risk is for financial markets at the moment. Uh, Tapas, have you got a, an impression of I know anything that stands out to you as being the biggest risk at the moment uh, to global markets? Yeah, I th- I've got three, actually. So the first one is, is North Korea. And I think putting aside the potential for nuclear <laughs> conflicts, which would be devastating everywhere, um, 
you've also got the potential for that conflict to, to drag out and to weigh on confidence. And so, you know, consumer, uh, business confidence is at pretty good levels at the moment, but there's always those, the potential for those geopolitical kind of risk events to, to spill over into those animal spirits. Uh, I think the second one is really this US-China relations. Now, Trump was elected on this anti-trade agenda, a lot of rhetoric around China, wanting to slap tariffs here and there, wanting to um, use those as kind of a bargaining chip with, with North Korea. And so I think just how that plays out will be very profound for uh, how it goes on in the markets. And I think the third one is really about the Fed. So it's really markets not pricing anything from the Fed for a, for a long time, barely pricing a first rate hike by the uh, end of next year. Mm, um, nice. And really, they're pretty much one more and done is pretty much how the financial markets are basically seeing it. So the risk is, is if US inflation does pick up, then if the Fed does go along that rate hike path, then uh, I think financial markets will be very, very surprised. Stephen, you have a risk yeah. at the moment that uh, there's sticking out like uh, – besides North Korea, I think, which I yeah. think we can all agree is probably the, uh, the yeah. number one risk uh, at the moment. It's sort of linked to that, but it's the trade issue. And we've seen that with uh, the Trump administration talking about imposing trade restrictions on companies uh, – on countries that um, trade with North Korea. And who's that? China predominantly account for 90, I think, percent of North Korea's trade flows. So is that a backdoor way of having that trade war that he was speaking about during the campaign mm. last year? Um, that would be – well, if it turns into a trade uh, war and tariffs and trade restrictions, and of course for global economic activity, that's a bad sign. And for market stability, it's a very bad sign. It's, it's impossible to know quite how that's going to go. But that's, that's probably uh, one of the concerns. Uh, one of the hints – on the upside, because um, I've been a bit gloomy today, and I don't mean to be, and I'm normally very happy, but um, uh, on, on the upside is that the fact that it's coming out of the Eurozone, which we haven't really touched on much, yeah, they, they seem to be uh, recording better economic news uh, pretty much continually through the course of this year. But despite that, the ECB um, have sort of committed to maintain you know, very, very easy stimulatory monetary policy. Uh, the Eurozone in total, all the economies within the Eurozone are bigger than the US. Uh, so do we have, you know, surprisingly, do we come back in three or six or 12 months and sort of have a look at where the global economy has gone? And yes, I agree, the US will continue to grow and be, be okay. Um, but is the positive shock that we might get in six or 12 months' time, the Eurozone really getting its act together, growing, that um, we see even some of the attempted reforms from uh, Macron in, in France uh, He's running into union troubles, but um, yeah. but yeah, but there's stuff happening in the eurozone that give me a, a more than a glimmer of light that you know you know Europe could well be the driver of global activity. Who would have thought it? And and on the back of that, the major export destination from China is the EU. So if the European economies are growing, then that gives a free kick to China to maintain or to get back to seven percent GDP. Commodity prices keep going, and we get that positive shock. So it's not all gloomy. There's one upside surprise, and for me, it would be uh, Europe. Of course. And, of course, uh, we're, we're recording today on uh, Thursday, and then tonight we have the ECB meeting, so we'll yes. see whether uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Draghi decides to uh, go and, uh, and announce a, a curtailment of uh, their QE program. Stay dubbish, Mario. Stay, <laughs> stay dubbish. Stay dubbish for the time being. <laughs> At least till next week. And uh, All right, well, so we've done the, you know, the news for the week, so we'll go to the sport and weather. Now, it's the start of spring, <laughs> and another thing that's starting tonight is, uh, is the footy finals, the AFL finals kickoff. Yes. Uh, we've got uh, the Crows playing GWS. Um, I think everyone's got interest in what uh, what happens in the football final series. Uh, any of you uh, have a, a view on uh, a who's going to go and win this weekend and who to go look out for in the uh, in the AFL flag winners? 
Yeah, well, I'm a Sydney Swan supporter, so I have to back my home team. There we go, 100%. <laughs> They've already won. <laughs> and I guess they are versing uh, Essendon, which is obviously coming off a um, off a low base off uh, over recent years. So I'll tip Sydney over, over Essendon any day. Um, and I'd really love a Sydney versus GWS final just to show that uh, Sydney is now the home of AFL. But uh, I don't think it's going to happen, and I think it's pretty hard for them to uh, get into the finals together. So I think... Sydney will definitely make the finals, but I don't know if they'll they'll uh, go through to the end. I agree. No, Melbourne team will make the grand final uh, of the AFL in my view. I think, uh, yeah, the Adelaide Crows are, are really good, and I think uh, GWS will be um, taken to the cleaners this weekend, um, tonight, in fact. Uh, and, and I have to confess that Sydney are looking very, very good after that horror start to the season. You know, Norton 6, I think it was, to kick off the year, but they've just come home so well, and you know, and, and Buddy Franklin, my gosh, he, you know, he's just such a great player. So I hope he does well. But I, I, my hunch is a Sydney Crows grand final after after we get rid of all these other teams and they're eliminated over the next couple of weekends. That'll work. I was at the uh, the Crows game that the Swans played over there and uh, and played against uh, I know the Crows and the umpires at night. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and, uh, and the Swans yes. still managed to go and, uh, and get up. So, yes. uh, look, I'm really looking forward. I'm going out to the game, uh, the Swans... Uh, versus the uh, Dons game this weekend. And uh, I think we can get through this game. I, yeah. Essendon is a bit of a bogey team. We've, uh, we've struggled on a time. And I, anyone who saw the game earlier this year was, I uh, know, you would have had the cardiac arrest. I <laughs> know uh, it was uh, no, last, you know, after the goal, uh, after the siren goal to go and win the game. So uh, if we can get through that, I'm feeling uh, fairly confident. We've, uh, we've played very well away from home and uh, nothing's really stopped us up to this point. So... We'll, uh, we'll see what happens this weekend, but uh, yeah, I must admit uh, the Crows have played very well. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how they manage to go tonight. Um, I've got a feeling whoever wins that game will go through to the grand final as well. Um, boys, also NRL finals kick off tonight. Uh, any uh, any sort of favourites for the uh, NRL? Well, with South Sydney out of the competition, much, <laughs> much to my sadness, and uh, we've got a new coach too, so hopefully that does something. But look, Melbourne Storm are just great. I think I just think they've got um, a fantastic team. They've got um, yeah, just this ability to keep winning. They score lots of points. Their defence is fantastic, and all the others are just has beens. And, and and frankly, the other seven teams in the finals have all shown very mixed form. Um, yeah, the Broncos have been good and bad, and uh, the Roosters have been good and bad, and uh, the Dragons have been all over the place. So the other teams that are sort of there are thereabouts. I don't think they've got the ability to stay there. So Melbourne Storm for me. So the NRL going to a non Sydney. Non Sydney club. All right, Tapas. I'd love the Sharkies to get up again. Oh. Uh, I'm a massive Sharkies fan, and uh, as 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 a disappointed fan for many a year, I was very glad when they did did win it in the end. Uh, but just as uh, Sim was saying, the Storm, you know, yeah. their form is just phenomenal for defence and even for attack. They are they are very very good, and and I just. Given prior form, I'd say they're going to win it. Yeah, well, lock it in. I'll put uh, Melbourne Storm in as well. Guaranteed. Uh, no, just the way that... Kiss of so, death from no, us. No, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, out and out straight sets. Uh, no, no, look, uh, they, they perform so consistently over the year. And just look at their spine that they've got as well. It's yeah. uh, They've got so much experience there. And look, they've taken an extremely strong team to go and uh, beat them. And at the moment, there's a bit too much inconsistency, in, uh, in my opinion. Um, well, that probably we're going to wrap it up. I know we've had our new sport and weather. Um, you'll be listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. You can find us on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S, and the show is available on iTunes where you can listen and add a review. Our guests this week have been Stephen Kakoulis, Managing Director of Market Economics. Stephen, thanks for coming back. Thank you, David. Thank you, Tapas. Great discussion. Fantastic. And Tapas uh, Strickland from the National Australia Bank, thanks so much for, uh, for making your first appearance here. Great. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it, David, and thank you, uh, Stephen, as well. Fantastic. Uh, everyone 
everyone. I hope you have a great weekend uh, and uh, up the mighty Swannies. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.